Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is someone I should have had on the show a long time ago, but I'm really glad has finally got an episode to himself. Tony Osano is the managing partner and co-founder of Insurance Advisory Partners and is someone who has been right at the top of deal-making in our industry for more than three decades. With roles at blue-chip firms on Wall Street and as insurance brokers, he's one of the few people who really excels at making the connection between the insurance industry and the global investment community and has had a hand in a large proportion of the most significant M&A transactions of the last 20 years. Because of this, he's a fount of knowledge and is someone whose counsel and analysis it is always worth seeking out. For example, if I ask, what will it take for investors to come back to reinsurance in significant volumes? Will higher interest rates take the shine off broker valuations? Or whether the boom in MGAs will run out of steam? With Tony, I know I'm going to get straight answers, and a real feel for where the market is headed that comes from direct and constant experience. He's also now his own boss, and that independence just seems to make it easier for him to speak his own mind. In this discussion, I asked all these questions and a lot more besides, and I wasn't disappointed. And neither will you be. I've interviewed and chaired Tony many times over the years, and I think our easy and good-humoured rapport comes across clearly in this conversation. So sit back and get ready for a vintage episode with a real market player. Whether a buyer or seller, or a business looking to raise debt or equity finance, or an investor looking for good opportunities in the insurance sector, Tony is one of the first people I'd advise anyone to call. Enjoy the podcast. Tony. Welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's not often I get a chance to be with such a legendary and insightful journalist, even if I am the 178th speaker. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited to be here. And so let's get after it. Well, first, forgive me, that was a huge oversight on my part to go three years without talking to you. Because Tony, you know, if we're talking about legends in this business, you are a legend. I have must have chaired you and interviewed you at different events many, many times, probably in double figures by now. And so it is an oversight of mine. So I'm really glad that we're correcting this and that we'll get you on the show many times more. Because if I need to talk to someone about what is happening in M&A, what's happening in the capital market, in the, the investor side of our business and how investors view our business and how many want to come in and how many want to get out, then you're the person that I would want to talk to. So what's the overall mood in the insurance-focused investors camp and also How's insurance looking? Obviously, we know in insurance and reinsurance, we should be looking better. We feel like we're looking a bit better, particularly in reinsurance and in specialty insurance. We've been fixing our roof for the last four or five years now. Does it make us look more attractive to those who aren't necessarily expert, who are from the outside saying, well, you know, is this an opportunity? Look, I think, Mark, that overall, for sure, investor sentiment has definitely improved for now. And the for now is an important point that I want to come back to. But you know, as you know, the combination of all of the factors that are coming together, the hard market conditions, both from a pricing and terms and conditions perspective, significantly higher new money investment rates and kind of a steady economic growth environment. I think it's given both specific insurance investors and other more generous investors hope that PNC has a chance to outperform the broader indices. And if you just look at the facts, if you look at the S&P P&C index, it's trading today on average at about two times book value. That compares to its 10-year average of one and a half. So it's 33% above where it's traded on average over the last 10 years, reflecting, I think, that positive sentiment and an expectation 
that earnings and returns are going to be good. Similarly, if you look at the publicly traded brokers, they're currently trading at about 19 times EBITDA compared to a 10-year average of 15. So it's the same phenomena and the same dynamic. I think the caveat, and this is important, is that investors are wary of volatility and they're wary about whether or not the market will maintain its pricing discipline. The industry's earned a return on capital lower than its cost of capital for a long time. And at the same time, the world continues to become a riskier place. So as an investor, you think about all of the conventional, as well as the emerging and the unknown risks that are out there, and you can go through the list and, and you know, many of your speakers have, but it's pretty daunting when you think about the, the pandemic, climate change, cyber, geopolitical instability, the war in Ukraine, inflation, rising interest rates, autonomous vehicles, and importantly, the unknown unknown. What's out there? What's lurking that we haven't accounted for? It's something that investors are going to watch very carefully to make sure that the industry has sufficient discipline to get the sort of returns that it deserves for the really important societal benefit of resiliency that it provides. And so I think the sentiment is good for now, but I think investors are watching very closely. It's nowhere near gung-ho is what you're saying. It's that people are recognizing that it, things have improved, but no one's saying, hey, let's just like fill my boots. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, a number of times people had expectations about the industry producing outsized returns where it didn't happen for whatever reason. They're substantial. And so I think investors are wary. They're being thoughtful. And while they're optimistic, there are lots of things that could change the direction of the sorts of returns the industry can produce in a moment's notice. Well, markets have, as Maynard Keynes said, that they had animal spirits. So at the moment, is it our own fault that we've kind of disappointed those investors perhaps too many times? Is that the right thing? We've kind of cried wolf and said, hey, come on in. It's great. We're resetting and then had another bad year. And is that wariness of volatility coming about? because obviously we've had so much of it and we've allowed too much of it to bleed into the bottom line. I think volatility is just part of the game in the insurance space. I mean, obviously it's part of what we do, right? Yeah, and the beauty of transferring risk from one balance sheet to another is what drives resiliency and is an incredibly important mechanism. But where the industry as a whole, not everyone, but the industry as a whole has fallen down is not being disciplined enough to charge the sorts of prices that are required to get paid to assume that volatility. Especially as the world becomes a riskier place, that discipline is critical. We had companies for a long, long time trading at below their book value, trading below the net assets of their business, which meant investors believed they were destroying rather than creating value. And so I do think that the industry has now got an opportunity to start to earn the sorts of returns that it should and to make sure it continues to do that into perpetuity as the world gets riskier. So we've got this kind of reasonably optimistic, but no way gung-ho and ever so slightly skeptical funding environment. So presumably that bodes quite well for stability within capital. If this was 2005, 2006, we all know what would have happened with another hurricane on top of a series of hurricanes with big pricing changes and capacity changes. Back in 2006, we had all those sidecars, we had startups. We have had very little of that. Does it mean that we're not going to get that influx of funding and it's not just waiting in the wings, waiting on another good set of numbers or something or a clean hurricane season? Is it this been almost a permanent change in investor attitudes, even though we've had a big reset, you know, we've reinsurers are sitting much higher up the tower than they were before. 
and theoretically taking away a lot of volatility now where they're sitting in stacks on people's reinsurance and, and you know with so much more going into sedents retentions for example give us a flavor of what's happening in that reinsurance funding market i think the funding market environment is also definitely improved and we've seen I would call it four or five billion dollars of new capital come into the market between Wren and Everest and Ariel and Beasley and Arc and Fidelis and others. And most of that capital, obviously, Wren was to fund the purchase of Validus, but most of that capital is available to be deployed into the hard market. And I suspect we're going to see more of that, both in terms of follow-on transactions and IPOs. We've also seen capital come into the cap bond market, and we had the strongest first half in cap bond issuance ever, and we had overall ILS capital top $100 billion. But you have to believe, as you step back, you have to believe that each incremental dollar that flows into the market gives the investors pause as to where is the tipping point. At what point is the amount of capital that's coming in going to kill the golden goose? So far, the companies that have been able to raise capital and size are very high quality companies. And I think that's where the market has discerned who they're willing to bet with in this hard market versus who they're still waiting to see. So it's going to be a delicate balance. I think others will be able to raise capital, but they'll have to have the right sort of track record and the right sort of management team that give investors confidence that they're going to utilize that capital in a very, very disciplined way. I think one of the other things that has driven this hard market and the ability to raise capital is with rates rising and bond portfolios getting hit. A lot of capital was sucked out of the industry as a result of the yep. mark to market on the bonds portfolios. Well, you look out a year or two years or three years and think about to the extent that the economy begins to slow, rates start to come down, those portfolios begin to go up whether or not that is going to create a whole different dynamic in terms of what's happening with pricing and capacity and things of that sort. So I think it's a very complicated environment from an investor's perspective to try to figure out where's the tipping point here between what is a generational hard market and what could transform itself into a soft market again. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. So it's all about discernment. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I would certainly agree with you that the sort of underwriters who've consistently made profits over many, many years, and probably the underwriters also have been quite happy to give back capital to their investors if they didn't expect they could make the right sort of returns in the marketplace. So again, those are underwriters with a huge amount of trust from investors. Is that about it? And the others would have to wait to put some good runs on the board before they could gain investors' trust. Do you think is that about where we are? Yeah, I think so. Or a price will be extracted to raise that capital that makes it trickier from an economic perspective. Yeah. And it's interesting you were mentioning about the mark-to-market losses in bond portfolios. Of course, we had mark-to-market gains for many, many years as interest rates went to zero. And again, it was notional capital. Does it affect the psychology? Of course, if everyone had a massive loss tomorrow, of course, they would have to liquidate their bond portfolios. But of course, these are generally bond portfolios that they want to hold to redemption. So it's not money they're expecting to have to pay out to tomorrow. 
but you're saying it does actually affect the market. You know, it, it is less capital. And also, we were about a year in now, and we were into this phenomenon of higher interest rates. Is it starting to wash itself through, and will it sort of become more of a neutral effect on notional capital in the industry? I think it's precisely at this point in time where you don't want to have a large loss where you have to liquidate a portfolio that all of a sudden has been marked down. And so, you know, whether it's the rating agencies or the regulators, they do look at it. And it is a fact of life that the value of those bonds are lower today than they were before interest rates started to spike. So it will wash itself out. It's a matter of time. And it's part of the cyclicality of the industry. But I think management teams and companies and regulators and rating agencies think about their overall capital resources in the context of where those bonds trade. So yes, I think it's having an impact on the market. And how long do you think it will take to wash through? It's difficult to tell, obviously, because obviously everyone's got different durations. But I mean, we're already seeing for those who were positioned very short in terms of their bond portfolio, you know, the overall embedded yield starting to rise as the new money comes in at much higher interest rates. But I think it's going to take somewhere between, you know, call it two and four years. Right. And by then, of course, if we're doing well, we might have a lot of retained profits as well. So the other way of adding to capital, isn't it, by organically building your own and retaining your own profits? Yes. We were talking about higher interest rates in how they affect bond values and how therefore they have a knock-on effect on industry capital levels. But we've had a fantastic run and it seems to be continuing. You were talking about 19 times EBITDA average valuation for fee-earning businesses, intermediaries, most in our world. Have those valuations peaked, do you think, now that we're looking at 5 6% interest rates? I think they probably have peaked, but I want to be careful because those business models are so attractive and so stable and so resilient that they've attracted capital in many different ways over a long period of time. And scarcity value for especially certain size businesses cannot be underestimated. And so when you think about, I mean, leverage has played a very important role in private equity's interest in the space. And I think it's been a driver of the very attractive multiples that have been paid. But rising interest rates are starting to have a dampening effect to some extent on the multiples that can be paid going forward. The other point is that there are a wide range of potential buyers for these businesses. There are all of the retail brokers, some of whom the big three may well start to look more aggressively at acquisition opportunities. Their wholesalers, their other MGAs, their select carriers, their private equity funds, their sovereign wealth funds. So all of these guys are looking at the sector as an attractive place to invest capital. And in fact, if we go and talk to the private equity universe today about a carrier where we want to raise capital, 90% of them will say, or 85% will say, and that's not an exaggeration, we're only interested in the services business. So when you find a small to mid-sized, high-quality, niche-oriented distribution business, the number of potential buyers who are interested is very significant. And therefore, there is a possibility that we'll see valuations hold or maybe even slightly top up for those sort of select platforms. What about leverage, though, for some of those who've got to refinance a much higher rate, anyone who's exposed to that? But it sounds like you're saying... Even if that happened and somebody sort of slightly fell over or lost their equity because of that, there'd still be plenty of buyers, it sounds like. I think that's right. I also think there have been a number of situations where private equity players have sought liquidity 
in a recapitalization transaction, which didn't trigger a change of control just to make sure they didn't need to refinance the debt they have today. And so we're seeing that as another path to liquidity for some of the private equity guys who have been in for a while. But I think it's going to be interesting. The number of private equity to private equity transactions that have occurred are plentiful. And going forward, I think we'll see a little bit of a shift to more strategic to strategic M&A transactions. Maybe it's going to be situations where two private companies come together to be able to realize synergies on a combined basis and therefore increase their EBITDA and, and decrease their leverage. Maybe it's going to be some of the large public players who want to get involved. And I also think we're going to see the IPO market become a venue for some of the highly levered businesses to establish a path to liquidity and to delever in the context of raising new capital. I think we're going to see all of that, and it's going to be a little bit of a shift of how business as usual has been for these sorts of businesses over the last five or 10 years. Because obviously we've had a prominent IPO in that space in the last two years, and it's gone pretty well. It seems what you're saying is that finance apart, which obviously finance is finance and interest rates go up and down and the cost of capital goes up and down. But there seems to be a fundamental thing that investors understand and believe strongly that intermediary fee earning businesses are very, very good. And I suppose there's actually been nothing in any of the performance of the actual operations of those businesses to disavow them of that view, one presumes. I think that's right. Organic growth has held up and actually accelerated to some extent. But if you do the math and just assume for a moment, I don't want to underestimate the impact of rising interest rates. If you do the math and you have a services business that has $200 million of EBITDA, it is likely to be levered at least, call it six to one. So it's likely to have $1.2 billion of debt on its balance sheet. Over the last 12 to 18 months, we've probably seen a 500 basis point rise for those who had floating rate debt. And that's 500 basis points on a billion two is an incremental $60 million of interest expense per year. And so $60 million of incremental interest expense per year relative to $200 million of EBITDA is eating up 30% of the EBITDA. And that's just the incremental expense. That's not yeah. the total expense on the debts. So that will eat into resources available for acquisitions. That will eat into resources available for investment in technology. I don't think it's going to create necessarily many really distressed credits, but it will have an impact. Obviously, in a rising interest rate environment, we'll never quite know what's going to happen with the economy from one day to the next. If we have a cooling economy, or if we even tip into a recession in different parts of the world, how does that bode for those fee-earning businesses? How defensive are they? I mean, historically, they've been pretty defensive. And the financial markets in general are starting to think about whether we're headed into a stalled economy or perhaps even a recession. And it really has had no impact whatsoever on the multiples at which the publicly traded brokers and other insurance services businesses trade. They're still trading it on average 19 times versus over the last 10 years, 15 times. I think the recurring revenue model and base of so many of these businesses, I mean, I used to remember when I was both at Willis and Tiger and I had to every year recreate a pipeline in the investment banking business and the reinsurance brokers had 90% mm -hmm. tools. I, I kept thinking, I, I wish I could die and come back a reinsurance broker. But I think at the end of the day, what we're going to see is these businesses continue to do well, even in a slower economic environment, probably more consolidation, more opportunity to create synergy. And they'll weather the storm, I think, fine. 
if organic growth goes from six, seven, eight percent down to two, three, four, will that have an impact on valuation? Yes. Will it be really significant? I don't think so. At the moment, so the last four or five years, we've decided to increase costs and it's been able to be passed pretty much all the way down the chain from whoever's doing the increasing. And so therefore, brokers would have been able to sell these increased prices and obviously maintain their commission and fee levels. Do you think there's evidence that that's going to be able to continue? Because at some point, presumably, there's going to be consumer fatigue. And if we have a genuine recession or stagnation of the economy, it might be harder to sell some of those increases. What's your feel about whether there might come a time when intermediaries or any fee-earning businesses might get squeezed? Well, the fee-earning businesses or services businesses did a fantastic job at protecting and growing their earnings all through a soft market. And frankly, it's hard to imagine in a hard market where all boats rise in this rising tide, that they're not going to be able to defend or increase the earnings in this sort of environment. And I think it gets back to the balance, if you will, in the value chain at the end of the day. The private equity and other investor interest in the fee earning business compared to the carry business is because of the stability of the business model. It's because of the importance they play in the value chain and their ability to maintain and manage their margins. I actually think that there's an awful lot of power in those distribution models. And when you look at a carrier and a broker who, let's say, are both producing $2 billion of premium, the goodwill value that's created at the broker is substantially more than the goodwill value that's created at the carrier. And that seems to me to be an imbalance that the brokers have been able to maintain over a long period of time, but something that you know remains to be seen how it ultimately balances out in the next five to 10 years. Will some of the economic shift from the broker back to the carrier probably needs to happen, especially as we see this massive shift in underwriting talent from carriers to brokers. Yes, there is that power balance. Do you think it is ever likely to shift? It seems that, of course, you can look at the market and say, well, there are three really big insurance brokers and three really big reinsurance brokers, and they're really concentrated, really, really powerful. But then, of course, the, the carriers are all fragmented. And there's some pretty big reinsurers out there in the world, some pretty big insurers, but none of them have anywhere near the sort of market share that those intermediaries that are serving them have. Presumably, with all this activity we've been having and all the MA activity, it only would seem that some of those intermediaries are even more consolidated than they were before. So would your thesis be that they're going to be pretty good because they're still in an incredibly strong position, that some of them may even be in a stronger position than they were before? I think that's a fair point. But at the end of the day, as the world becomes a riskier place, the carriers are going to have to be paid to use the amounts of capital they use and to take on the sorts of risks and volatility that they're taking on. And so this is a lever. It hasn't been utilized effectively. I think the brokers are very effective. I think they add a lot of value. I think they have creative solutions that they bring to the table. But at the end of the day, whether or not the economics are appropriately balanced, I think remains in question. I mean, an another thing that we looked the other day, which I, I just found is an interesting fact, and you talk about consolidation and the concentration of power amongst the brokers, the top 20 private equity-owned independent brokers if you look at the value, you know, the, the sort of estimated value, if you will, of each and every one of those, those 20 companies are worth some $220 billion in enterprise value. And so 
it is the top 20. None of these are public. The top 20 private equity owned businesses amass to $215 billion of enterprise value. That's a lot of EBITDA. And those aren't particularly consolidated. I mean, those are businesses that are growing at nice clips. So yes, while there is power concentrated at the top, there's also a growing tier of these other businesses where I think you are going to see, as I mentioned before, you're going to see some consolidation amongst themselves. You're going to see some consolidation amongst the public guys coming in and, and taking a look and grabbing them. And then you're going to see some IPOs as well. And that's pretty significant when you put that up against the market cap of some of the biggest carriers out there. It's pretty impressive. You mentioned about underwriting talent going from carriers to, you said brokers, but I suppose there's a wider phenomenon of fee-earning businesses, MGAs, MGUs. That's been one of the most interesting phenomena of the last four or five years, accompanied with the hybrid slash fronting carrier incubator. There's been an enormous amount of growth, most of that in the ENS markets. What do you think is behind that? It's been an amazing period of creativity, of new businesses forming, and billions of dollars of premium moving from one home to another. And it doesn't happen that often. So what do you make of it, Tony? Where's it going to end up? Obviously, a lot of carriers will be talking to me and saying, well, the market's all going to end in tears. Not all of those billions of dollars of business could be all good business, could it? And at some point, it'll all play out. But I'd love to have your take on it because it is a fascinating. It's so rare that we have a big kind of tidal shift in the way things are going. I'm going to answer that in kind of two segments. I mean, first, look, there is undoubtedly a massive shift of underwriting talent from the carriers to MGAs. And it's because of the fact that the MGAs have been able to offer greater wealth creation opportunities, given the sort of attractive multiples that they command in the private market. And I think, you know, there are lots of variations to the theme as to how those underwriters come out and set up into MGAs, you know, but the MGAs, they're spawning very entrepreneurial and creative approaches to attract talent. And they're also at the same time finding ways to get carrier capacity. I mean, the Fidelis transaction, I think, was the most dramatic of those approaches. And I believe that will prove out to be a very successful strategy over time. Obviously, the Fidelis IPO, to some extent, was an initial referendum on the structure of keeping all of the IP and the MGA and having the carrier. So to provide. be clear, where the investors decided most of the value resided. Yeah. And I think the investors have, have taken a wait and see approach to see whether or not the company will produce on a consistent basis the source of ROEs. I mean, you know, I'm hearing estimates in the low 20s ROEs for that company that is expected. And if, if they do, produce those sorts of returns on a consistent basis. And if the overhang in the stock, given all the private equity ownership that remains, decreases, then I think the stock will trade up and validate the value-enhancing nature of this sort of bifurcation transaction. But there are lots of variations on the theme. I mean, there are MGAs who are attracting talent and building MGAs within MGAs and giving underwriters a piece of the action. There are incubators, et cetera. As far as the fronting model, Sometimes when you take these underwriters out, it's hard to find a primary carrier that wants to take 100% of that risk and compete with itself. And so obviously there's been a proliferation of fronting companies that can go straight to the reinsurance market. I've been around now for, for 37 years in the industry. I've seen a number of fronting companies run into very serious difficulty. I think it's a business model that needs to be watched very, very carefully. It only takes one reinsurer 
with a significant amount of recoverables to say no, to create a problem that can result in a rating agency action and a spiral downward. It only takes one contract, which isn't written correctly, to create trouble. So I'm cautious and vigilant about how all of this fronting capital is going to perform. Certainly there will be some winners, but I also think we may see, you know, because yeah, some... it's, it's a different type of leverage, isn't it? That you don't need so much capital yourself because you're relying on the reinsurance capital. But if they let you down, then suddenly, yes, it doesn't look so good at that point when you don't have enough capital to make good on what you're exposed to. Certainly on the MGA side in general, would you say it's because they've just invested more in technology, they've got a better home for talent and they're doing a really good job in general. I mean, the more mature ones have been doing a great job and they're giving a lot of those paper providers instant distribution, instant diversification, and with a good loss ratio. So I suppose if they can carry on doing that, then why would they ever stop growing? I think that's right. I mean, they have centers of underwriting excellence where they are experts in particular niches. And to the extent that they're good at what they do, then not only can they attract more talented underwriters to come and participate in this wealth creation experience, but they also will be able to attract the capacity because carriers will view it as a good business that they want to be on. There are plenty of times where in the past people said, well, you can't give away the pen. You can't give away the pen. You know, you're going to get killed. That's still a concern. I mean, you know, I think carriers have to be careful and there will be MGAs who don't succeed. There will be MGAs who lose their capacity and therefore have a real issue. But I think there are plenty who are succeeding. And what those underwriters would argue and say, well, it's great. The paper providers can go and do what they're good at and run capital because I don't have to do that as an underwriter. Now I get just to focus on what I'm good at, which is underwriting. That's probably a good segue into the Fidelis transaction because that's the rationale. Richard Brindle's rationale when he was on the show was, well, you know, this way you get more Richard Brindle doing actual underwriting, which is what Richard Brindle would say Richard Brindle is good at and what any broker would tell you that he's good at. And he's probably doesn't enjoy talking to investors and raising capital or, or doing his quarterly earnings calls as much as other people do. Now that we've through this transaction with Fidelis spitting into the MGU and the balance sheet, do you think we're going to see more? Or is it, if it's a roaring success, then we might see more? Or is it just very unique? Because obviously we're talking about some very unique individuals at the top of those organizations. I think we're going to definitely see more. But I think, as I said before, there are variations on the theme. And this model will work only for specific situations where the sum of the parts equals more than the whole. It's interesting that you know, nobody showed up to buy the carrier, the Fidelis carrier at the end of the day, because people you know, on the carrier side generally feel like they want to keep the IP. But there are lines of business that will be subject to what we call Fidelis light transactions. There will be small private deals where there is an immediate buyer for the capacity and another buyer, if you will, for the intellectual property in the form of an MGA. We're working on some, we will see more. I think as we talked about the Fidelis IPO and the stock price is a prove me story. And if that business begins to trade at a premium to book, which I expect it will over time, that will further strengthen or embolden people's desire to take a look at this structure. The other thing that's been part of this tide and part of this story, but probably not to be confused with it, has been a very strong time for excess and surplus lines markets. 
it's a cyclical thing. Something, you know, those of us, you and I have been around long enough, know that some of this ebbs and flows. This is a hard market thing where the admitted market spins things out to the excess and surplus lines market when they can't necessarily stomach them. And it's difficult to stomach them within the highly regulated admitted lines market with a finding rate and other things. But how much of it do you think this time is cyclical and how much of it is secular? There does seem to be an argument that some of it is secular, that some of these changes are permanent. It ought to be secular. I mean, can you imagine any other business where, as you realize that the cost of what you're doing is going up, that in order to be able to adjust your pricing or the terms on which you offer that product, that you have to go to a state regulator? Particularly if they're politically elected as well. And seek approval, which takes a long time. I mean, how many companies have we seen who had a spike in costs, huge economic losses, and it took a year or 18 months or 24 months to get through the sorts of price increases they needed. So why wouldn't you prefer to operate in a market where you have pure freedom of rate and terms and conditions? It is a better mousetrap almost any way you think about it. So if insurers need to get paid fairly for the volatility and the risk that they're assuming, then the ENS market's a place where that can happen more efficiently and more rapidly, you know, than the admitted market. So I would think that this is more of a secular trend. We'll see. Again, it gets back to some extent to discipline. But, you know, we have seen a proliferation of people getting into the ENS market and we've seen better results from an underwriting perspective in the ENS market over time. That's good. Well, let's see how long this hard market lasts. And then if it does start to soften, we'll see how much of it goes back. And yeah, there's nothing we can do about that apart from weight. Something I'd like to ask you about, again, been a large investment. It was probably the mooted Aon Willis transaction, obviously, which didn't end up being consummated, that fired off a starting pistol, particularly in the reinsurance space, with reinsurance intermediaries either coming into being or being really beefed up reinsurance divisions at challenger brokers. And so you've worked at a challenger broker. You've also worked at an incumbent, the very high capital markets slash reinsurance end of insurance brokers as well. And because of that, I'd like to have your view on what do you think, now that we're sort of three or four years into this, do you think you can see an end game here or that there will be, for example, do you think some of those smaller ones will get to scale or will some of them, we've seen this in the past, might have to take each other over or be consolidated? Again, the one thing that I learned at both Willis and Tiger is that the reinsurance brokerage business is a very attractive business. Right? It's a great it's, business. Yeah, absolutely. But the recurring revenue model, the the high margins, the ability to, to some extent, utilize the relationships that exist outside of reinsurance brokerage to build the business. The importance of providing capital advice in this environment to CEDENTS at the end of the day was the whole reason why we built Tiger Risk Capital Markets and Advisory the way that we did. So it's a great business with lots of success stories associated with it. But at the same time, I think that the market wants options. I don't think the market wants the top three or four to dominate the business. There are lots of permutations around the sort of advice that can be given. And in some of the bigger firms, I think there are lots of conflicts and lots of drivers that cause it harder to be objective and always do what's in the absolute best interest of the client around a particular reinsurance or capital trade. So look, I think we're going to see consolidation amongst the smaller reinsurance brokers. I also think we're going to see some startups. I think people look at some of the wins that have occurred and say, 
there may be an opportunity in the market to do something similar. And it would not surprise me one bit to see Willis Towers Watson get back in the business. And that could be through a startup or it could be through an acquisition. So yeah, I, I don't think we're going to see it become more concentrated. I actually think we're going to see probably six or seven or eight meaningful reinsurance brokers over the next five years in the marketplace. And the funny thing, I suppose, when you look at Tiger, obviously with the merger with Howden, that was hard work, but that's a fantastic example to anyone. Look at what Rod and his team have managed to do and look at the value they've created in a market that's very difficult to get into and difficult to break into, high barriers to entry. But I suppose it's a great example to show someone, you know, if you're a great entrepreneur, you can do something pretty special here and, and yeah. the value you can create is enormous. Well, I think it gets back to the fact that anything is possible. And that was a good example. And also back on that point about the market, the cedents, you know, those people paying for that advice, it's really up to them to decide if they want that fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth player, they'll have to support them and they'll know they'll have to make sure that they give them enough business and enough of a showing because if they really want them, they want that extra opinion, that extra fresh idea or impetus or just something that's not conflicted or whatever, then they'll have to support this. And look, each is going to have to have its own specific value proposition. At the end of the day, whether it's particular expertise in certain lines of business, whether it's particular expertise in certain reinsurance transactions, take legacy, for example, whether it's capital markets expertise that comes alongside that helps clients, there'll be something that has to be differentiated or distinguished amongst all of them in order to succeed. But I think it will happen. Another thing that's cooled down an awful lot recently, probably in a wider risk off kind of environment is inshore tech. What's that funding environment like? Obviously things have cooled down, but it seems to be very rational and there still seems to be plenty of funding for the right kind of businesses. Still seeing the occasional unicorn being created in that space. What's the general mood there? I think the way you just position it is absolutely correct. There is capital available. That capital is much more selective and discerning than it was when the InsurTech kind of boom was in full force. And I think that capital is a little more risk averse around, you know, what it wants to go to. We probably turned down 75 InsurTech fundraising opportunities. We're busy on the InsurTech front, but the number of companies that are finding it difficult to sell their particular business model to investors and hitting the wall and either therefore having to cut expenses or to try to do a rescue sale as their backs are against the wall, it is very, very significant. So I think, you know, you had a whole bunch of investors, sophisticated investors who got burned by some of the colossal failures that became unicorns early on in the cycle. And now they're looking for proven business models with a very clear runway to profitability where the technology for the most part enables rather than tries to disrupt or destroy or replace the incumbent or embedded or established competitors. So it's kind of a different, I think, focus to some extent. So we're seeing businesses like analytical businesses, businesses that have an edge or a very proprietary modeling angle, businesses that provide other services to the incumbents. Obviously a lot of cyber businesses that have an approach to underwriting cyber that is technologically advanced, SaaS businesses that are providing software to some of the competitors and others that are helping to enable and transform and provide technology that improves underwriting and efficiencies in existing businesses. So 
I think that's kind of how it shifted. A lot of people will tell you the strategic and venture capital investors, it's really tough right now. And I think that's true unless you have a truly differentiated business model, in which case there are plenty. And we've seen it. I mean, you've seen it in a number of different businesses out there that have been highly successful at raising capital at very high valuations, but they have a real discernible, tangible edge. Yeah. It's almost as if we could stop calling it InsureTech because these are just great businesses that are very complementary to the insurance business, which of course is going to welcome with open arms anything that will make them better underwriters or reduce their loss ratio or eat into their expense ratio or whatever it is, or make them understand their risk in better ways. Should we get rid of the word InsureTech? I still think there's a place for the word InsureTech. It's just going to be a smaller universe of better businesses. No, that's really good. A lot of maturity and yeah, no euphoria and no hubris because, well, hubris, yeah, obviously I'm a journalist. It can't really take too much of it. <laughs> what about your own business, Tony? Insurance Advisory Partners. Looks like you're going really well. We see what's at those tombstones. You're raising capital for different clients. They're all over your website and you're probably adding a new one every few days. What sort of entrepreneur are you? Are you the sort of guy who wants to build a business that's going to have your name above the door forever? Or as a deal maker, are you always open to a deal? Well, first of all, I would say from your lips to God's ears about adding a deal every two or three days, that would be... Well, it's sort of not quite like that, but it's got good <laughs> momentum on it. It looks good, you know, but websites are supposed to look good, of course, but there are lots of deals there. Yeah. We are working hard to create something truly extraordinary. We are a 100% employee-owned partnership. We took in no outside money. And we have a clear vision and desire to create the highest quality insurance investment banking platform in the world. We're up to 20 people with offices in New York and London, and the momentum is awesome. And, you know, when I built businesses at Tiger or Willis or even B of A, there was a two-year investment period where you were planting seeds, having conversations, building brand, building the team, building the infrastructure. And then you hit an inflection point. I think we're just about at that inflection point. So... To your question, we want to build something that is truly durable. We want to build something that's unique and differentiated. When people think about who should we hire, we want them to think, or oh, we have to hire insurance advisory partners because they're the best in the business. I've been around long enough to know that you never say never. And I've heard lots of entrepreneurs say, I would never sell this business. And guess what? They did some sort of transaction. They sold the business. They merged it. So we'll be strategic and thoughtful and really focused on just building something amazing. And if there's something that is compelling strategically, whether it's some sort of merger or some sort of acquisition over time, we're going to be open-minded and thoughtful and commercial about it at the end of the day. So that's a long way of saying yes. <laughs> well, I suppose if you do the right things and if an opportunity comes on to make you grow even faster, then you kind of think, well, sometimes it just stacks up, doesn't it? And it becomes obvious. We're early in here and it is a ton of fun to come in every day and see the progress that we're making and the amount of professional pride that that generates is something that I hope lasts for a long period of time. Well, certainly we've seen fantastic success in similar businesses and, you know, boutique investment banking has done extremely well. Whenever I talk to Steve McGill, he says that's his model. That's what he's trying to base his insurance broking business on, that kind of phenomenon. And there's no reason why you haven't got lots of runway into the future, Tony. I've known you for a long time, and so I know that you're extremely capable. You're very kind. So yes, if anyone wants to make a bid for the voice insurance, I know I'll have to get you unconflicted immediately and get you on a retainer. 
<laughs> no, Tony, it's been fantastic talking to you. This is probably the most encyclopedic conversation that I've been able to have with anybody on this show in the last three years. So I have to make sure that it's not another three years before we have you on the show again. But until then, thanks so much for coming on and good luck with all the work you're doing. Sounds great. And come back on the show soon. Thank you, Mark. And same to you on your continued success. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>